Did you know that road rage has doubled in the last seven years? Doubled in the last seven years. Now, texting has been out since 1995, but I don't know a lot of people doing it. I don't know if it's a swipe feature or speech-to-text was available, um, except for maybe up to seven years ago. I'll bet texting is a lot of it. So some of you have helped push the needle in that statistic. Thank you very much for that, the road rage statistic. 12% of adults that experience road rage, it's considered serious road rage. 12% of adults have what's considered serious road rage. The statistic, what they refer to as young adults, and I don't know what they mean by that, 18% of young adults experience what is called serious road rage. So do the math. That's about one out of every six or seven cars that you pass. Right? You're going too fast, you're cutting them off. I mean, it's just a matter of time before you get to that seventh car. You know, I mean, five, six, you can almost time it. Just count. Next time that you're acting a little bit weird out there on the road, you're being goofy, that seventh car is going to be the one to run you into the ditch. Unless it's like on a Sunday, then your odds are probably a little bit worse. Probably like one out of two or three. So you're pushing your luck then. Right? That's amazing to me. 18%. Horus who is a first century poet, he says in one of his epistles, anger is momentary insanity, which is true. We know this. We know that anger is uh, just a moment in time, a speck in our, in our story where we become very, very crazy. I don't think I have to define anger for you or rage. But if we were to distill it down, if we were to take anger and pull it down to its most native form. It would be an emotion that we have that's characterized by hostility towards anything, someone, something that is trying to hurt you, jeopardize you, take from you. Usually it's taking. Something tries to take from us, we get angry, right? Most of us in this room have anger to some degree in our lives right now. Anger is complicated though, it's not real cut and dry. You might not feel very angry right now. It might be easy for you to say, I don't feel like I'm very angry right now, but sometimes it's such a slow and low boil that it doesn't even pop up on our radar. But many of us in here are angry to some degree because someone is trying to threaten or take away from our person or our family or our friends or our space and our time, our comfort, our money our reputation, our self-worth. Anger is not so easy to understand how it works inside of us. In fact, it gets real complicated sometimes. Sometimes we have emotions that overlap with anger, and it kind of makes a weird-looking baby. Some unique emotion that we can't even quite get our arms around, and we don't even know what to call it. Have you ever been around someone who is in the middle of grief? Grief is a good example. Someone who just lost a loved one to death. Have you ever seen them get angry in that time? It's an odd thing to see. They're almost mad, sometimes they are very mad, at the person who died. Right? How could you do this to me? How could you leave me? If you'd have just gone to the doctor sooner, if you'd have just taken care of yourself, had you just, whatever it is, fill in the blank, we, we get mad sometimes at the person who has died. We get mad at the doctors. They're doing their best. We get mad at the nurses who clocked in just like you do. We get mad at the, at the people bringing casserole dishes. To help us out. I mean, sometimes anger overlaps with sadness, overlaps with a lot of different things. In this series that we're doing called We Are Different, when it comes to anger, we are all the same, but it does come out differently for different people, doesn't it? 
And that's usually influenced by our history, mostly by our personality. And we're going to look at a little bit of both today. But it's hard. It's hard for us to grow as angry people. But isn't it hard living life with angry people? Whether you're married to someone that's angry, roommate with someone, have someone in your family that's angry, got an angry kid, right? I was an angry kid too, by the way. Junior high and high school, I was just an angry young man. It's hard. You're in community with people that are angry. You're trying to bring the gospel to people that are just angry. It's hard. You know, we grew up understanding that anger was always wrong. I did. I'm not going to speak for you, but I could speak for most of you, I think, right? If you're angry, that means you're sinning. There's no such thing as a righteous anger. So every time an anger would kind of well up in me, I'd start to feel like I was sinning. I would feel dirty a little bit inside because anger is something that is wrong. So my goal in life was to avoid all kinds of anger, all kinds of wrath, all kinds of rage. Should this really be the goal, though? Sounds like an odd question. Should it really be our goal to avoid being angry? Can we live and walk like Jesus and avoid anger? Can we do life together? Really, I mean really do life together and avoid anger. Can we extend God's love to the city of Knoxville and avoid anger? Is there a good kind of anger? Is there a, how do you know what that is? The Bible speaks to this emphatically. Righteous indignation or righteous anger, righteous wrath. It's not a footnote in the Bible. It's a pretty big theme. It's something we see over and over again. And what it shows us, and what we're going to look at just a little while, is there is a great, great time to be angry. There's a great time for your blood pressure to spike. You can actually have your blood pressure spike and get angry inside to the glory of God. Did you know that? It's in the Bible. I think we struggle sometimes in finding where righteous indignation is and where sinful anger is. We, we, they get clouded. They overlap a little bit. And we struggle knowing, it. is this right that I'm feeling like this right now? Or is it wrong? Sometimes we have what the Bible would call a righteous indignation, but we hit the brakes and come way back because we feel like we're sinning inside. And sometimes we have a sinful anger and we let it all out there for everybody to see, but in pride we say, I needed to do that. It was a righteous thing that I did. So it's weird how we handle that and how it gets confused. It is a sin for us to abuse anger, but friends, sometimes it's a sin not to get angry. Sometimes it's a big sin not to get angry. You see, every emotion God has given us is right when it is used rightly. Every emotion. Every emotion that your body feels welling up in those initial stages, every emotion that we have is right when used rightly. But it's easily broken, isn't it? Think of some of the things that sprout up in us that actually have a godly origin to it and ends up becoming deformed by the time it comes out of us, like concern. Concern is something God put in us, like maybe even a compassion, something where we see an injustice, or we see something going afoul, and we want to help, we want to jump in, there's concern. But because we're, we're humans and we break gifts that are given to us, it turns into things like anxiety. Right? We just wring our hands and every concern becomes our responsibility. We feel real gross and sad inside because we're not fixing every little concern. Right? What about desire? Longing for something. That's also something God has put in us. It's a very godly uh, feeling that wells up to desire. But by the time it comes out, a lot of times in sin, it looks like lust. It looks like coveting. What about fear? Fear, I mean, emotion, I don't know. 
that's an emotion, but it is something that God puts in us to where when we step to the edge of a cliff, we stop being goofy at that point. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because it's trying to save us. I mean, fear is, is, a, is a boundary. But sometimes, sometimes, fear can paralyze us, right? By the time that the emotion that God has put in us comes out, we become paralyzed. Paralyzed to make decisions. Paralyzed to make friends. Just paralyzed. Every emotion can be misused because we break our gifts often. I think this is a theme I've probably said. It feels like in the last several sermons. Anytime God gives us a gift, we break it. God gives us marriage, we figure out ways to break it. God gives us community, we break that super easy, right? God gives us finances, he gives us treasure, we break it. He gives us the gift of time, we break that. He gives us spiritual gifts, we break them, right? He gives us Jesus, and we break him. Yes, it was God's will to crush him, says Isaiah 53. Peter says, mankind murdered him, though. We broke him, broke his body. This is actually in us, it's in our DNA. All the way back to Cain. Cain is the first person ever born on earth. The first person, the first baby's cry to come out in God's creation was Cain. And he was known as an angry murderer. This is what it says in Genesis. Don't turn there, we're just going to read it off the screen. It says, but for Cain in his offering, God had no regard. God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So what's going on right here? God sees that he's angry. He's angry. There's an emotion coming out of Cain that says, Hey, I'm a little ticked off right now. Why? Why did Cain feel ticked off? Because he felt disregarded. He felt like God had no regard for something that he was putting out there, an offering he was putting out there. Felt a little rejected, maybe. We know what that feels like. And God says, hey, 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 well, this doesn't have to happen this way. This anger you're feeling, it, it could drive you towards something different. But then he goes on to say, and if not, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So we see anger abused right there. But we also see anger handled righteously in 2 Corinthians. This is Paul talking to a young church, and he says this in the seventh chapter of 2 Corinthians. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. He's saying, look at what you guys have done with this sin that's been sprouting up in your midst. Some of you are sinning, and you're sinning against community, and you see the sin. Some of you have a righteous, zealous, wrath, indignation against it. And it's glorifying God. You see, the goal in our life on this planet is sojourning Christians that will be gone sooner than later. Our goal is not to avoid anger. It's to express it to God's glory. Not to escape it, to control it. To control it for God's glory. Be sure that we express it righteously. Aristotle says this. He says, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose and in the right way, that, well, that's not so easy. And I agree. But we see a couple snapshots. I'm going to fly through these. Just some snapshots of times where we see righteous anger handled righteously. 
Moses in Exodus 32. He comes down from the mountain, right? He's got the, the tablets. Saw the finger of God etched, these new commandments for a new nation. And he comes down after he just met with God. And it says, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He was ticked. They're half clothed. They're dancing around half drunk around this idol that they made with their own hands out of all of their possessions. Right? All their gold. And he throws the tablets down and they break. And he's screaming and spitting so loud, everyone on the front row is catching it. He is mad. He grinds up that idol, puts it in water, and makes them drink it. That's angry, folks. It's righteous. Saul, King Saul, before he went rotten, in 1 Samuel 11. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So what is the first thing that comes after the Holy Spirit motivates Saul? Anger. This might mess with your theology a little bit, but this is Holy Spirit-infused anger. This is a wrath that came by the power and the majesty of God's Spirit. It's amazing to me. David, later on, 2 Samuel 12. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Now, we don't have time to go into this story. It's a great story, though. You have to go back and read it on your own. The reason he is so upset and the reason there's great anger that is kindled in this moment is because he just heard a story about where justice had failed. There's a failure of justice. The wrong guy got away with it. And he said, uh-uh, no. It's a righteous time to be angry. Whenever we see the failure of justice, it's a good time for wrath to well up in us. John 2, we see Jesus in this story. And I'm just going to pick the last verse because we know what happens. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Why is this being said? What just happened? Jesus just made a whip. He made a weapon. How many of you know how to make a whip? Right? I mean, without YouTube. And you'd have to watch it like six times to learn how to do it, you know. He breaks out and makes a whip. He makes a weapon, marches into the table. He's just flipping over tables. Money's going everywhere. These wimpy Pharisees are running for the hills. Cows are walking around. He's screaming. His face is red. He just went Hulk smash on the whole temple environment. People are running around. Is he allowed to do that? I mean, that just doesn't look right. Why was he doing that? Because the glory of his father was being defamed and defiled. He said, no. Interestingly, I don't know if you're alone or if you're with me, but if I was in that situation, I think the temptation in my gut would be him to calm down, to try to calm down Jesus. You ever catch yourself reading that passage and thinking, why is he just flipping out? Put the weapon down. Put the weapon down. Someone needs to be picking all this money up, too. But put the weapon down. Pick the money up. Weapon down. Let's walk out of here. The police aren't here yet. I'm sure you just didn't get enough sleep last night. This doesn't seem to be the love that you always preach about. It seems like you just are going too far. Later on in Mark 3, he gets again, again, very upset. When he has a man in front of him with a withered hand, and he looks around and he says... Is it good that I heal this guy? Their lack of compassion led him to burn with anger. Why? Because that's a good thing to have anger burn for when you see a lack of compassion around you, even when you have a lack of compassion in yourself. Listen, these are all good examples of sanctified anger. But where does it go so wrong? Where does it go wrong? Paul shows us in this text today 
um, how it can go wrong. And understand that in Ephesians, we're about to go in Ephesians 4, his main concern in this chunk of Ephesians is how this new church is getting along together, right? You've got brand new Christians slamming into brand new Christians, and there's all kinds of weird stuff. There's slander, there's offense, there's anger, there's bitterness, and he's helping them work through that. Harmony of the church is his primary concern right here. So let's go ahead and look and just let the, the text teach us. Ephesians 4, we're going to jump in verse 25. Paul says this, this is good word of the Lord to us today, therefore, having put away falsehood, and that could be deceit or lying, because we don't really use the word falsehood as much anymore. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Hear it. Be angry. Be angry. Be angry. And don't sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, I want to pause right there just for a minute because there's some good commentary that we need to look at just at that point. We need to, I'll tell you what. No, that's probably good enough for us to stop. What we see right here, whenever he says be angry and do not sin, we immediately think of throwing temper tantrums and blowing people up in our anger, don't we? And that's probably rightly so. That's usually what goes to my mind anyway. But then he goes on to say this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's not so much of an idiom, but it is a common saying, saying, don't wait so long. Not, not do it before 6, 12 p.m. today, take care of it, but don't let it go forever. Don't be goofy about that. You know what will happen if you keep it inside. You know what will happen if you make that deposit in your, your bank of anger. It's just going to sit there, and it's going to accrue interest, and it's going to turn into something real disgusting, so get it taken care of. Don't be a loud jerk, and don't be just bitterly silent. Why? Because it gives opportunity to the devil. And Paul was concerned because he's watching this church start to fragment a little bit. Listen, if you have an issue, and there is anger in you, can you be angry to the glory of God? Are you angry right now to the glory of God, or is it for your own glory? Which, which glory is being dented right now? What is making you angry? Why is it making you angry? Because keeping it inside and letting it simmer and becoming bitter, it's just not being honest. In fact, he says it's being deceitful. He says, don't be deceitful. But at the same time, just throwing a temper tantrum, which just blows people up, and it's also sinning in our anger. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is an interesting passage right here. Again, he's trying to, he's concerned about the, the body, okay? But what you would think he would say is, is, hey, if you're a thief in here, it was a great church, man, because they had ex-thieves in there. And not all thieves, by the way, have a mask and a black hat on, right? But there were people in there that were stealing things. And he says, hey, get honest with how you make money. And he doesn't say that to say, so that you can finally be an honest person. He says, get honest with how you make money so that you can give to the church. Quit stealing. Quit stealing. Be honest in your employment, how you make finances, so that you can share with others who are in need. Right? It's a cool passage. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That doesn't mean cussing, by the way. Okay? It doesn't mean cussing. There could be cussing in corrupting talk. That could be the case. 
But what this word means is decay or, or dry rot, which will start to eat away and kind of divide what the body was at the time, right? Do not let that divisive or that corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Let's pause right there. There is a bit of a personality spectrum, right? We looked at history a little bit, but we're all different. Our DNA is so oddly arranged, but there ends up being a spectrum between those who externalize all of their anger, just let it all hang out for everybody to see, and on the other end, you have those who internalize their anger and keep it all inside. Those who anger outwardly and those who anger inwardly. And we all fall somewhere on this spectrum. I think I'm on both sides because I can't figure out which one I like the most, right? But when you fail in anger, where do you, and it doesn't even take any time to think about this, where are you? Do you internalize and just a silent assassin or are you like a volcano? erupting on everybody all the time. I like to look at those who externalize a little bit as someone who is a little bit of an externalizer. And you might not know that because you don't know me very well. Just ask my family. Those who externalize, they do it most whenever they feel safe. They'll tell you I can throw a tantrum from time to time. Right? But what does it look like? This is the person who blows up, ventilates out loud in a little bit of a, a rage. They go beast mode like that. They don't take much time to think about it. They don't hit the brakes. They don't, they don't process what's going on. It's just immediate rage, right? This is when we act out of control. And now listen, I say acting because that's all it is. As one who is given to this from time to time, can I just tell you this? It's an act because you can stop it at any time. Done am I with the times of meeting with someone that says, listen, I'm just out of control in the moment. I don't even know what I did until it's all over. I mean, it's almost like I snap out of it and there's a hole in the wall and I've thrown this glass and I've screamed and I've said all these things. Luke, I'm just out of control. No, you're not. Come on, man. No, you're not. Put yourself in a situation where there is just a volcanic thing and you guys are just throwing grenades back and forth and it's just the decibels are getting louder and louder and louder. And you're saying things that you know you're going to have to say sorry for later on, but you don't care because you want it to stick. So you're saying them and you're saying them. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see the UPS guy coming up the walkway. What do you do? You shut that rascal down, don't you? Put a little smile on your face. You go answer the door, get your package, smile, feign interest in how that guy's day is going. We can stop. You're not out of control. You're not out of control. It's an act. You know, all of, not all, I'd say there's a giant concentration, however, of biblical advice, biblical teaching for us who struggle with ventilating out. Right? And it all happens to be in Proverbs. I see a high concentration of these passages that lead us in Proverbs. I'm going to throw just a couple up there. Proverbs 29:11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. <laughs> what is it saying? A loud temper tantrum has people saying things before they think. We speaky before we thinky. And then we spend half of our time saying, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry I said that. I didn't really mean that. That might be you. You might struggle with rage if you find yourself apologizing so much for the stuff that came out of your mouth. 
Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. Loud temper tantrums leave us acting and behaving like fools. We rush into it headlong. We ventilate all over the place. And what this passage says is that we elevate and we worship dumb. We worship dumb. Punch the wall, kick the car, punt the dog, throw the book, scream cuss words, whatever we do. And then later on, when our hands don't work well and our car won't start or whatever, we're thinking, that was so dumb. It was so dumb. Proverbs, man, it's great. Proverbs 22, 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. <laughs> Loud temper tantrums, they're contagious. They're addictive, and they're contagious. Some of those same statistics I gave earlier. Over 50% of drivers who are on the receiving end of aggressive behavior give aggressive behavior, right? So when he gives you the middle finger, you give him two, right? While you're honking the horn with your elbow. I hope you see this, you know? They go in front of you and go slow. They hit their brakes. Why? I don't know. They just keep doing it. And what do you do? You zip around them, hit your brakes, just to stick it to them. 50%. That means that there's less than half of us in here that when someone does something like that and they give us the bird or they honk the horn, we just look and say, what up? Have a good day. I'm cool. That doesn't happen, is it? That's the minority of us. It's contagious. Proverbs is right. Tantrums beget tantrums. That's how it works. Maybe some of you are here in this beast mode often, right? Here's some encouragement for you, and we're going to talk about this right towards the end, okay? God has created you to have this ferocious welling, this active end. He's actually created that in you. There is a way for that to glorify God. There is. We've seen it in history. But before we swing that way, I'd like to look at the internalizers, those who keep it in. These are not those who go beast mode and let it all go out. You will see no Hulk smash here. You will see silent assassinations. They'll look at you, they'll smile, but they have cut you off. They have cut you off. They have discontinued you, and they are moving on. I'm good at this too. I'm really good at this too. The biggest manifestation of this is bitterness and resentment. Bitterness and resentment. That's why he says in verse 31, he's not just going off, uh, Paul's not going off on just wrath and anger and clamor. He's saying, let all bitterness as well. Let all bitterness go away. Put it away. Put it away. Some of you are wondering if this is what passive aggressiveness is. You've called yourself passive aggressive or you've labeled others passive aggressive and what you think you're saying is, is that person just puts it off and you never know that they're angry until the last minute and then they just explode on you. That's not the best rendering of what that means, though. Passive-aggressive behavior, it is anger shown and displayed. It's just veiled. It just looks a little differently because they're not going to freak out and fritz out everywhere, right? But they'll get real sarcastic. And they'll be very slow to adhere or obey. They'll be difficult, right? They'll have a lot of questions. It's different, but sometimes, sometimes there is a blow-up after a prolonged period of time. Sometimes that does happen. Sometimes you just can't take it anymore. And that's the place where the, the pot blows the lid off. And then you know, uh-oh, something is going on, right? Small things. It's usually something small. It sets us off. 
It's usually something real tiny that in itself is kind of meaningless, but it represents so much more, doesn't it? If you leave your underwear out one more time on the floor, if I see one more piece of underwear on the ground, I will cut you. You know? Is it that big of a deal? No, we're always picking up stuff all over the house, you know? Toys, socks. What does that represent? It represents someone feeling disrespected repeatedly over and over and over again, right? Every time I get in the car to go to work, I see that you left it in the driveway with no gas again. So you're calling on the way to the gas station. Guess what I'm doing right now? I'm fueling my car up. So guess what? You don't get to drive my car anymore, you know? And so there is this thing of, now is that such a big deal? Not one time. If you're married to someone and they do that once, you don't throw a flag on that, but the 38th time, you fritz out because it represents so much more. A big one that I do in the house is I leave glasses everywhere. I've actually gotten better in the last year, but I'm like a deer or an antelope with watering stations all over the Serengeti, all over the house. I've got one in the bathroom, I've got one in the garage, one in my office, one by my bed. I've got glasses everywhere. And it's not because I'm smart and efficient. It's because I'm lazy, right? So sometimes my wife comes around the corner shaking with a glass in her hand. The 19th one that day she found. And I just know she's going to smash it on the wall and make a weapon with it and just cut me, man. It's not that big of a deal. It's a glass, right? But it is a big deal because of what it represents. Because of what it represents. Listen, whenever there is a ton of anger, for a small thing, it's not the small thing, right? We know this. There's bitterness. There's resentment. It's been simmering, storing up, accruing interest. Listen, secret hatred. I mean, all that's joking. All of that's fun, right? The secret hatred, it will destroy a family. It'll destroy a marriage. Listen, <laughs> that's a separate sermon altogether. There are several of you in here who have just gotten married or are staring down the barrel of a wedding right now. And let me tell you, let me just save you a ton of trouble right now. There is nothing, nothing, hear me, there is nothing, nothing, there is nothing that will destroy your marriage quicker than secret hatred and bitterness and resentment. It will kill it quicker than lying. It will kill it quicker than lust. It will kill it quicker than so many things. Secret bitterness that just rolls and accrues from year to year to year to year to year. It will destroy it. And guess what? It will destroy a church too. Straight up, it will destroy a church as well. There are people in here that some of you are angry with, and you smiled at them this morning. Waiting for them, waiting for them to make up for it before you give them any grace. People that you smiled at. So what do we do with this fountain of anger that rises up inside of us? Because obviously letting it all hang out isn't the answer, right? And letting it all stay inside and, and roll over, it's not the answer either. And don't depend on culture to give you the answers because their answers are goofy as well, right? Some of the leading ones you see culture put out there, whether it's through secular counseling or just dad or granddad's good advice, right? One of them is basically externalizing in a safe place in a safe way. Right? What that means is, is Screaming into the pillow, punching the pillow, you know, imagining that person's face that you can't punch at work. I, like I said, I was, an angry, I was an angry kid in middle school and in high school, so I got into a ton of fights. I didn't win any of them, I don't think, but I got into a bunch of fights. So the counselor said, listen, get him a punching bag. Let him wail on that thing. After the, and I did. I would wail on that thing every day until I couldn't feel my hands anymore. Imagining that person's face on the bag. 
coach, teacher, boss, dude at school, whoever. And you know what I was doing? You know what culture was leading me to do? Murdering that person in my heart. Not an answer. Not sufficient. Not helpful. Not godly. Ventilating where you feel safe, where you feel like it's safe, is driving just as much of a wedge in the community as just the anger to begin with. And if you flip the needle over to the other side, you have this movement that says, well, you need to not feel what you're feeling. You're not really angry. You're right, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. They're not making me angry. I'm fine. I'm fine. Blood pressure's going up. I'm not angry. I'm not angry. You can't hurt me. And after a while of playing that act, it starts to evolve into, you can't make me angry. You can't make me angry because you can't affect me. Because you can't hurt me. Because I won't let you. Because brick by brick, day by day, I've built up a wall to where no one, no one can hurt me. No one can make me angry. Both those, both those methods are goofy. And they kill community. So what cure do we have then? We can't figure it out. Culture can't figure it out. What cure do we have? Listen, we have the gospel. We have the gospel. Again, like every week, we have the gospel as our answer. Let me explain. Look at what God did with his anger. This is part of the good news of the gospel. Looking at what God did with his anger. He set it on the shoulders of another. Someone, not you. God was angry? Yes. Yes, God's anger. The Bible refers to his anger, his wrath, they're very close synonyms. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. There is an anger of God against the sin of mankind. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then in Revelation 19, we see that Jesus says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What is going on right now? God is angry. He's wrathful against sin. And he has proven it, by the way. He has shown it. A lot of us in here, we struggle with this. And we've tried to airbrush it or Photoshop it out. And it's hurt the image of God. God is less God without the wrath of God. A God with no wrath against sin. A God with no anger against sin is a God with no justice. Because he has no answer for sin. Sin is unpunishable. This is what J.I. Packer, he says, regarding the, the wrath of God. It's very helpful for me. He says, it is rather a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous. And his love would degenerate into sentimentality. Without the wrath of God, he says, his, his love just becomes gooey. It has no, no power behind it. It's just sentimentality. It's love without any truth at all. There's no truth backing it. His wrath, however, even though like his love, it has to be described in human language. It's not wayward. His wrath isn't wayward. It's not fitful. It's not spasmodic. That's the way ours is, he says. It is permanent. It is consistent. And it is as consistent as his nature of love. It's a very real part of who God is. God has a justifiable anger for unjust actions. He has a justifiable anger for unjust actions. God's wrath came to Jesus and rested on his shoulders on the cross. Right? We have a hard time with that. But it's 
It's a beautiful part of who God is. As I said earlier, in Isaiah 53, it says God's will to punish and to press and to crush Christ. It was God's will to do that. And then we see later on in the New Testament where Jesus says it's for the joy set before me that I go to the cross. Jesus willingly does something like that, knowing what will happen. God empties his cup of wrath on Christ. And because he did that, if you are a son or a daughter in the king, you will receive no punishments. It's all been doled out. There is none left to give. Not for you. Not for you. If you don't love Christ as the king and you are far from Jesus, then we have to go back to where it does say that the wrath of God remains on you. But for those of you who love God, and this is important, which is a totally different sermon of what it does to make us live differently when there is no more wrath that is on us. But right now what I'd love you to see is that his cup is dry. Christ yelling out from the cross saying, why have you forsaken me, means that you will never have to say that. There will never be a time where you will feel forsaken or be forsaken because of what Jesus did. So what do we do? We actually let the anger lead us a little bit. This sounds weird, so hold with me. But anger, whenever you find yourself getting angry, it brings you to a place where you can look at what God did with his anger, look at the beauty of the gospel, and see that he totally is a good, great God who is always in control. That's where your anger should lead you. Let me explain. There's a guy named Chip God who wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart. And he says this. Chip says, anger exposes and expresses the heart's desires and true content. And it does. Something's being taken from me. I'm feeling out of control. I had this and now it's gone. They're trying to hurt me. They're trying to jeopardize me. I have liability where I don't want it. So Chip's right. Anger exposes our heart's true desire and content. He says, this exposure separates and declares our intentions, makes known our choices, makes known our decisions, values, feelings, and needs. Anger, then, is the feeling that clarifies who we are and who we are not. That's a microscope. It clarifies who we are and who we're not. Clarifies where our values are at, where our fears are at. So how do we change? We let it expose us. What is your anger telling you about yourself right in that moment? Your heart. What is your anger showing you about your heart? And can you turn from that and turn towards God's heart towards you? Can you turn from what your heart is telling you and turn to what God's anger has done on the cross for you? Listen, in the four G's, as Chris was talking about earlier, and there are cards all over the place. You can take those home. But on the four G's, and we'll have it up on the screen, the one I think is most appropriate for this is God is great, so you need not be in control. God is great, so you need not be in control. And the reason I think this is most valid is because whenever we're angry, most angry, we feel like we've lost a little bit of control over something, right? We're sitting on the couch, we're watching Netflix, someone knocks on the front door. We have lost control of our space and our time and our comfort. A slanderous rumor goes around about us, something much more serious. We feel out of control because others are manhandling and getting their fingerprints all over our reputation and self-worth, and we can't do anything about it. We've lost control. Think about all the times you get angry. There's a loss of control. Something has been taken from you. Where do you find this happening to you? Where do you find yourself getting most angry? I know what it is for me. This has been a difficult topic for me all week. But what is on the line for you? You get most angry, you feel the blood pressure rise, you're having to really think about your words. 
What is on the line? What's being jeopardized? What's being taken? Where are you being cheated, defrauded, inconvenienced, stolen from? What is happening? This is the place your heart is telling you what you value. Listen to it. What is it telling you about yourself? And then take it to the Lord. And then take it to the Lord. Because God is in control. God is in control. He says, you have taken my son, and you have sinned against me. And it is for my glory, and it is for your goodness, because I am totally and always in control. This is a hard way to change. Angry people, it's not an overnight fix, is it? It's difficult. It's difficult. It's kind of a smear. It doesn't really fix overnight. You just steadily get better as, as you believe God's truth more and more and more. It's hard to live inside of our own skin when we're like that. But what about when we live in community with each other? How do we handle angry people? I'd say first off, you need to remember that their anger is not necessarily a sin. In fact, sometimes when they get angry at something that is good, it makes us insecure, so we lean back on them. You shouldn't be so angry. In actuality, you should be more angry. Remember, it might not be a sin, but whose glory is being dented whenever it is a sin? Or let's just say you see someone that's angry in community. Why, why are they angry? Is it because something was done and taken from them, or was something taken from God? Was his glory defiled? Was, his, was there a defaming of his people? Was justice failing at some point? Whose glory is being defiled? When there is sin, lead them to see where God is great and where God is in control. Lead them to do this. Lead them to understand that they don't need to fear destruction. They don't need to fear anything. Everything is going to be fine. God has seen this coming. He's not ambushed. He's not insecure. He understands what's going on. He's way ahead of this. These are things you have to say. Lead them to see where it is they're placing their trust and why it is that they're angry. Listen, this has got to be surgically done. Your temptation will just to be tell them. Tell them where they're going wrong. Don't do that. Help them see it. Lead them to see it. Slow walk them. Well, what are you valuing? Why are you so angry right now? It'll be hard for them to process it, especially in the midst of anger. It'll be difficult for them to process it. But be patient. Walk them through it. Help them see the gospel. You won't always be there. And on a side note, are you angry at what's hurting them? How do we live on mission? Living in community is actually a little bit more complicated. Living on mission is a little bit easier. Chip God says this, anger, he says, creates movement. Anger tells the truth about our hearts and our hearts' yearnings without there being any intention to harm. Angry people who are pure with their anger can be good company to keep. Moses was angry. Abraham Lincoln was angry. Martin Luther King Jr. was angry. Every one of them brought powerful, personal, passionate, and vulnerability to life. So what is it for you? Where is your righteous indignation? This is something we don't think about very often. Where is your righteous indignation? This is how the women's suffrage movement just lit up off the ground. Slavery, abortion, sex trade, civil rights. What is it for you? You know, it's going to be different for each one of us. We're going to have different things that flare up and make us angry. Can I be honest with you? I think we need more angry Christians. I just think we need more angry Christians. The generation I see coming up more often than not is 
satisfied with being soft-spoken at all times. I don't think that's very helpful. I don't think that represents the church. Obviously, it doesn't represent Christ. We see the opposite. There is a time for being soft-spoken, and then there's a time for a furious rage. I know that sounds weird. There's a time to be angry. What is it for you? What is it that creates anger down in your gut? You see something, an injustice. You see justice failing. You see a lack of compassion for something. Where is it that your heart jumps out? It's causing anger in you. There's got to be something. Take a drive. Look around. Watch the news. Can you drive up and down Broadway and Central and not have anger jump up in you? Can you look at the statistics of kids without parents and have anger not drop in your gut? What is it that does make you angry? Listen, and there is a, not every concern is your responsibility. It's something I said earlier, and I believe. There are things that I am deeply concerned about, but they're not my responsibility. I have an anger against the injustice, but I have something so overwhelming in this, this area that I pour my time in that area. But it is upon me to be angry with all injustice, because that's a Christ-like characteristic. But you are going to have something tailor-made in you that develops, and you're thinking, I'm sick and tired of seeing that. If I had a million dollars, I would fix that. Or if I had more hours, I would fix that. Why do you think that's in you? Why do you think God has given you that rage and that anger inside of you? It's to move you into mission, friends. It's to propel you. I can't, I can't get around the idea of single moms. I just can't. I can't put it down. Kids that don't have a father figure blow me up. There are a few things that make me as angry as that. And that's where I find myself drifting. I just kind of drift out of any lane towards that one over and over and over again. What is it? Some of you, it's the sex trade, and it's always about the sex trade, sex trade, there's human trafficking over and over and over again. Man, listen, I'm angry and I'm concerned about that, but there's obviously something a little bit deeper in you. God put that in you. That's a righteous indignation. And he didn't do it for no reason. That's not to be wasted. It's to move you into mission. This is one of the beauties behind how we've designed our comm groups to be, our community groups. So we, we've designed them to be propelled around mission. So that when people glut in and out of these living rooms, it's all bent around mission. To have a living room full of six or seven couples or four couples or whatever, that's fantastic because we're all doing life on life to each, with each other. But whenever you have four or five couples where they're all angry at the same thing, you've got a small church that's throwing a lot of weight around. You've got good mission. That's what keeps us from standing up here and saying, this is important to us as a church. It needs to be important to all of you. Get on board. You're either fishing or you're cutting bait. Get excited about what we're excited about. We're putting that in your laps. What is it that you are excited about? Where has God put a righteous indignation in you to move, to move fast, to move big, to take risks? I'll tell you what, we're, we're just about done. But what I'd love to do here, a little bit of an audible, I love doing this. But if we could all stand up, just one second, stand up. What I'd love for you to do is to break up into groups of three or four. Some of you are like, it's that week, man, it's that week. It's like whack-a-mole for you. You don't know which week we're going to do this. I'd love for you to break up into groups of three or four or five or whatever's comfortable and makes sense. I'd love for you to look at two questions. They won't be on the screen, so listen up. Okay. One question is, is where does anger carry me towards sin? And where is anger carrying me towards mission? Where is the anger in me sinful and inflective? And where is the anger a righteous indignation? 
I'd love for you to listen to each other as we talk it out. And then I'd love for you to pray for each other. Pray. Pray that something comes out of that indignation, that mission just grows and blows up. Listen, you're going to have a great time doing mission, and you will feel uh, God move through you as you do mission-like acts to the city, because we are all called to be missionaries. But when you do something that God has ruined you for, <laughs> that's something totally different. There's no going back after that. So pray for each other, okay? We're only going to do this for a few minutes, so don't give everyone your life history, okay? No one, first of all, they don't care. They don't know you. But second of all, we don't have time for it, all right? But talk about where is it that anger is carrying you towards sin, and then where is it carrying you towards mission? Or maybe you don't know, and you just need people to pray that you can see that, okay? So let's go ahead and break up into groups of three or four. I'll turn my phone on a stopwatch so it won't go forever, okay?